you feel a change in the weather. Usually it's toward the end of August that you, you, the sweltering summer changes. There's a different feel in the air. And uh, I think it came a little early this year. There's just a different feel. It's cooler in the morning and it doesn't get quite as hot. And that uh, iron grip of the fierce sun we had there for a while has diminished. So I hope it doesn't come back. It's easier to get out and get things done when it's a, a little cooler. But it's... I did kind of feel that change again this year, even though it is seemingly a little early, but maybe it's permanent, maybe it's not. We'll find out, I guess. Well, here we are, watching over the demise of our nation, uh, step by step, incrementally. Uh, last night in Portland, the protesters were not only throwing rocks and concrete, but also sending out tasers against the uh, cops trying to blind them. And uh, the thing just goes on and on and on. But there's something curious that I want to point out in particular that's happened over the last couple of days. And I think it bears watching. I don't know yet what it means, but when President Trump was in Ohio I think it was two days ago, he was giving a speech to the Whirlpool Corporation, their employees, and a, a big big gathering anyway, in a very public way. And he said a little more than this, but along this line, that he has some very, very rich enemies. And that you may not see me for a while. Now, that's a very strange-sounding statement for a sitting president to make. I've never heard any comment in my lifetime from any president along those lines, just kind of out of the blue. We know he has very, very rich enemies. <laughs> we we're, That's pretty well established. And the connection between that was one sentence to the next, you may not see me for a while. Now, does that mean that, I'm guessing, uh, there's a, they uncovered an assassination plot and he's going to go into hiding? Or I guess any number of things could come to mind as to what he might, why he might be gone. He might have a health issue. Uh, doesn't look like it or not seemingly, but you, you never know. Uh, so, it's, it's a puzzling statement that he made. And when he left the White House, as I understood it, yesterday, to get on his helicopter, nearly everyone in the building came out on the front lawn, there was a picture of it, to say bye. And that's highly unusual. Uh, I mean, usually there's Secret Service and, you know, a very few people that would see him off on a trip where he's going somewhere. But nearly everybody in the building came out. So, do they know something? Uh, was this a particular reason? I don't know. I just heard uh, not an hour ago that uh, he's planning on giving a speech, I think on Fox, uh, sometime today. Uh, so, I'm kind of tuned in to see what might be said or might not be said. Sometimes silence is louder than something you do say, so I don't know. 
it's just something that seemed very, very strange to me and unprecedented as far as I know. So something to keep an eye on. Just be tuned. Uh, we don't know how fast this thing's coming down. We know it's coming, uh, coming very rapidly. And there are several things that are causing it. And those are manipulated by some very, very rich people and some enemies of Trump. And we know names on some of those. So uh, let's be aware, be alert, be watching, because things could change overnight. I mean, we could have a turn for the worse very quickly. Some kind of a 911 event or, you know, a false flag of some kind. And things could turn for the worse very, very rapidly. So we're kind of floating along here with three or four things working solidly against America as a nation to destroy it. And uh, they may hurry up the process in some way. I, I don't know what all this means, but certainly bears watching. The last time we came down to Genesis 12, and we're just beginning to get into the life of Abraham, and I'm doing this to see if we can identify some characteristics, uh, character is the base word for characteristics, uh, about his personality that would make God consider him a friend. You can look at Abraham's life from quite a few different angles, but the angle that we're approaching it from at this point is to see what about him would appeal to God. What would make God want him to be his friend? And I think I stated in some form last week that when we consider someone to be a friend or want them to be a friend or have accepted them as a friend, there are certain guidelines, certain things in our minds, and they may vary from person to person, of what we look for uh, in deciding whether someone is truly a friend or what kind of friend, a passing acquaintance, a, a close friend, a very close, a blood brother, if you will. Uh, there, there's different levels of friendship. And this one, I believe, was a very, very high level because he's the only one that God specifically says, my friend. We reviewed that uh, he said, or spoke to Moses, eyeball to eyeball, as a friend would. And I think that certainly implies that he felt friendship toward Moses to do it in that way. He did not offer friendship in the Old Testament, except on that very limited basis. Uh, maybe there are others, such as David, that he considered that way, but nothing is said of it. Uh, but in the New Testament, he said anyone addressing the disciples who would keep his commandments, do what he wishes, he would accept as a friend. So that includes you and me. And if we want to be friends with the Son and the Father, then we have to follow what Christ said. And I think it could be very instructive to us in what our attitudes and approach and the kind of character we should be building if we want to be close friends with God. To me, until this came 
strikingly to my attention. It's been coming more and more year by year as, as we read in there where he offers friendship there in John at the Passover time that we could be friends with God. But it's only been recently that I've really come to grapple with the reality and the specificity that I could be a friend of God. I mean, he said it to the disciples, and he says, are those who follow you, basically. But I started taking it personal, and that's something I would very much like to attain, is to be a friend of God. Couldn't pick a better friend, could you? <laughs> and that's, that's the epitome, that's the ultimate, is to be a friend of God. And since he's offered it to you and to me, personally, because we have agreed to keep his commandments. We have set that as a goal and a purpose. Uh, he summarized them down to two. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Both are tall orders. <laughs> they're simple, they're easily said, but very difficult to accomplish in both cases. Uh, and yet, he said, if we will do that, we will be his friends. So without further ado, let's get into Abraham's life a little bit and look at some of the high points and see what we can read into his personality that might be of use to us in pursuing the same goal of becoming a friend as Abraham was. I got barely into 12, so let's pick it up there. Now, the Eternal had said to Abram, Get you out of your country, from your kindred, and from your father's house, unto a land that I will show you. I won't show you ahead of time. I spent some time on that. He just didn't have a map. He just was told, Go, and I'll show you somewhere along the way where you're headed and help you identify it when you get there. So he did and I'm repeating myself, I know, as Christ tells us in the New Testament, to be willing to give up father, mother, brother, sister, land, any and everything to follow God. And where whatever he tells us, wherever he wishes us to go, whatever he chooses for us to do, or assignment or job he gives us, we're to give up whatever is necessary in order to go do that. So what Abraham did... Here is what Christ would tell us 1,500 or so years later we need to be willing to do. Unquestioned obedience. Don't know where we're going, what we're doing fully. Just do it. And ask for guidance and direction and understanding along the way as you go. And be willing to give up anything for God. So he set a wonderful example, and he shows his character here. He says, do this, and I'll bless you for it, in verse 2. And I'll bless him that bless you, and curse him that curses you. Now, there's God showing his character and his personality. I have chosen you, and I put a lot of stock in you, Abraham, or Abram at the time. And he says, anybody that blesses you, I will bless. Anybody that curses you, I will curse. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing for God to tell you or to tell me? 
All your friends I'll bless. All your enemies I'll curse. Oh, wow. I, I'm taken care of. You know? I'm just taken care of. Don't have to worry about a thing. God will take care of it. Now, did he immediately? Not in all cases. But we're going to see through here that he was very much with Abraham and did that very thing for him as a human being. It wasn't all pie in the sky in the kingdom of God. It was then and there as a physical human being that God carried out what he told him there. Anyway, this is so far what God said. Then verse 4, So Abram departed, as the Eternal had spoken to him. And Lot went with him, that was his nephew, son of his brother. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed out of Haran. Age 75 when this all started. So he took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran, his servants, his helpers, and they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. Now it may very well be, and I think it is highly likely, that they were in Mesopotamia when this, when this instruction was given, that the second cradle of civilization was there, and that the, the continents had been divided in the days of Peleg after the flood, so instead of just going overland as they would have done prior to the flood, after the days of Peleg, they had to cross the oceans to get here to the land of promise, the land of Canaan. So it was a long trip. Probably took a while. But he didn't argue, did he? God said, do this and I'll bless you, and he just departed. Okay, see you, Dad. See you, Mom. See you, uncles and aunts and cousins. I'm out of here. Wow. What an attitude. You see people, well, it's not so much today as it used to be. Uh, when families were all together, when I, even when I was growing up, most of my aunts and uncles and cousins and both sets of grandparents lived within two miles of each other. And I could walk between all of them. Uh, well, not, well, yeah, quite a few aunts and uncles. Some had moved, but they weren't too far away and got together fairly often. Uh, but now, people just take off anywhere, any direction, it seems. Uh, it's a whole different world than it was 50 or 100 years ago. So maybe for some of us who are younger and seeing what's going on in our society today, leaving your father and your mother and your family may not seem like too big a deal, but used to it was. You thought pretty carefully before you did that, because that's where your support was, it's where your living was made on the family farm or ranch and so on, and to pick up and go away from that out on your own uh, and work for pennies for somebody else uh, was a big step. Not anymore, but it was then, and was till recently. But even then, for those of us who came here, when we read Micah 4, among other places, but that's the one that definitely said, get out of the city, go dwell in the wilderness, and we had to consider leaving parents, elderly parents, our families, our jobs, our homes, just like Christ said, and so we did. 
You know what? God appreciates that. He appreciated it in Abraham or Abram, and he appreciates it in you. Uh, don't, don't minimize that. How many people have looked at Micah 4 and said, I need to do something? Not very many in the church. Uh, there are very few who have read it and equated it in any way to the church. And wouldn't have a clue what to do if they did say, he says, leave the city and go dwell in the wilderness. They'd try to find themselves a wilderness somewhere if they took it seriously. And most would not. So for God to open your mind and to give you that instruction and for you to accept it and heed it is highly unusual. So you've showed some of the characteristics of Abraham already. Now let's work on friendship with God because we see an incredible attitude in Abraham where God said, drop what you got, drop your family, go. Okay, I'm gone. Out of here. Anybody want to come along? Oh, Lot, you want to come? Yeah, okay. My servant's here. Yeah, you want to go? Okay. What about you, Sarah? Yeah, I'm coming. Let's go. Done deal. I was living in Montana. Uh, the last two churches I had in Helen and Great Falls. Up on a mountainside, beautiful. Steep as a cow's face in front of the house. Overlooked the mountains. Had a mountain behind us. And deer and elk and bear in the yard. And I was That was my happy place. Loved it there. But one day it hit me. There's some more things that could be done in Alaska. I could hunt things there. I've never hunted and fished for things I've not fished for. So I looked at Marla and I said, uh, why don't we sell out and move to Alaska? She said, okay. I, I just happened to think of that here when Abraham said, okay. Uh, that willing mind... It's so important. I didn't get that. What are you talking about? This is a nice place. We're this good here. I'm happy here. You want to go to Alaska? Go. I'm staying right here. <laughs> no, I didn't get any of that. It's okay. Let's do it. And jumped right in and helped us get ready to do it. That willing, ready mind is so important to God, and He took this very seriously. So he came there, uh, and once he got there, God appeared, verse 7, and said, I'm giving you this land, and he built an altar to the Eternal who appeared to him. So he was, he had done it, he got there, God appeared and said, I'm going to give you this land, You've, you found it, it's here, and then Abraham, or Abram, built an altar to God. Now, Let's go on down in this chapter get a little different characteristic. Uh, verse 10, there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. And it came to pass, he came, he was coming and entering, and he said to Sarah, his wife, Behold now, I know that you are a fair woman to look upon. I think that's understating it. When Sarah would go into a new place, 
all the king's men and his advisors who were on the lookout for beautiful women for the king, whoever he might have been in whatever country, and kings do this, always, it seems, invariably, they would say, Oh, king, look what just came to town. And would recommend Sarah to the king. And that happened here. So she must have been quite a looker, okay? I know you're a fair woman, so maybe that's understating, but he realized she was a beautiful woman, okay? It'll come to pass when the Egyptians see you that they shall say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but will save you alive. So she was so fair, if you will, that he knew ahead of time what would happen and they would want her so badly that they would kill him in order to have her. Now, pretty women can come along, but you wouldn't kill to get them. So this must have been someone that was really nice looking, put it that way. They'll save you for themselves and they'll kill me. Say, I pray you, you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and my soul shall live because of you. So they saw that she was very fair. The princes of Pharaoh saw her and recommended her to Pharaoh, and she was taken to Pharaoh's house. And he entreated Abraham well for her sake. He had sheep and oxen and he asses and men servants and maid servants and she asses and camels. And Pharaoh was paying an incredible dowry here for this woman. He didn't kill Abraham or Abram, but he gave him great gifts for Sarah. And then the Eternal plagued Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai. And Pharaoh called Abram, Abram and said, What is this that you've done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So I might have taken her to me to wife. Now therefore, behold your wife, take her and go your way. And they, he commanded his men, and they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. Now, We'll see a little later on when this happens again in a different circumstance that he says, well, she is my sister because she was his half-sister and wife. But he wanted to uh, maximize the sister part and minimize the wife part, even though it was half He was concerned about himself. He was also concerned about Sarai. He didn't want her to be taken, so he said it this way, hoping they might leave her alone. But he had deep down somewhere in him this feeling that they were going to take her anyway. Well, here was a man who could have become his enemy very well and whom he expected to kill him. What did God say up here? Those that curse you, I'll curse. So here he was about to steal Abram's wife, and God sent plagues, grievous plagues, on Pharaoh and his people 
And suddenly Pharaoh woke up and tied the two together and said, Wow, take this woman and go. So God intervened for him and saved the both of them, uh, possibly. Her from being Pharaoh's wife and him from being killed if when he found out the duplicity or partial duplicity that Abraham gave, uh, he was willing to tell part of the truth, not all the truth. But you know, Christ did that a lot. He wouldn't always tell the whole truth. He spoke in parables so that they would not understand. Abraham spoke partial truth, didn't tell the whole truth, hoping they would misunderstand. So, people accuse him here of being a liar. Not really. He was telling truth. He just didn't tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And sometimes you don't need to tell the whole truth. Christ spent his whole ministry here and never told people the whole truth. And then he said to the disciples, Oh, okay, you're my friends. I will tell you everything. So he didn't until then, and after that, he inspired them and told them many things after he left. So, uh, you don't always have to say everything you know. You consider the situation. You figure out what needs to be known, what doesn't need to be known, and you tailor it. Some people won't tell you nothing about nothing, and other people will tell you everything they know and some things they don't know. <laughs> That's just the difference in people. But here we have Bible examples, and God did not get on to Abram for not telling the whole thing, uh, but he protected him as he said he would. So he could trust God. He's learning more trust in God. He learned some by... He, he, knew, he did trust God already. So when God said go, he went. And then when he got there... God blessed him, and he worshiped God. Now, God said, I'll bless and I'll curse, and that happened. God was good on his word. So, chapter 13, they got up and says in verse 2, Abram was very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. He had lots of livestock. And he had lots of silver and gold. wonder where he got it. I think the same place Solomon got it. same place we know today that it is and will be uncovered. Isaiah 45 says the, the land will open and it will be shown and help bring forth righteousness and salvation because it will reveal who the true God is and so on. So, he says in Haggai, the silver is mine and the gold is mine. Well, he obviously had shown Abram here in the promised land where it was. And he was very rich in silver and gold. Had all he needed. Anyway, he and Lot uh, were traveling together still, living together. And a problem came up. They had so many cattle, verse 6, that the land was not able to bear them that they might dwell together, for their substance was great so that they could not dwell together. 
And their herdsmen started fighting in verse 7 uh, over grass, over land, over whose cattle would be fat and whose would go without. All right, here's a characteristic of Lot, an important one, important personality trait. Verse 8, Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife. They were both witnessing it. They were getting reports from their herders, both of them, that, man, we did we ever have a fight with them yesterday over this grass spot. So they both were aware of it. So Abram did what? Became a peacemaker. Isn't that one of the primary characteristics Christ used in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, particularly Matthew 5, where he said, blessed are the peacemakers. Now, peace would not have ensued here, normally speaking, okay? This would have turned into a fight, and blood probably would eventually have been shed, and Abram and Lot would have become enemies. That's the way it normally works with people estranged from each other. But Abram addressed it first. Let's not fight. I pray you, between me and you, and between my herdmen and your herdmen, for we be brothers. Let's get our relationship straight here. You're my nephew, I'm your uncle, but we're brothers together. Let's not fight. Is not the whole land before you there's this huge land. Separate yourself, I pray, from me. If you will take the left hand, I'll go to the right. Or if you depart to the right, I'll go to the left. In other words, you get first choice. Abram was not selfish. He was a rich man, had much. Jesus Christ said, very difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, like going a camel through the eye of a needle. But here was a very, very rich man. And yet, look at his attitude. He wasn't grasping. He wasn't greedy. He wasn't trying to get everything for himself. Now, he could have pulled rank here. He could have said, <clears throat> you know, I'm your uncle. Say, uncle. <laughs> That's what we used to use when we wrestled as kids. Say, uncle. Then they'd turn you loose most of the time. But no, he didn't say, I'm older, you've got to respect your elders, uh, you know, uh, young man. He just said, we be brothers, you take what you want, whichever you want. You go that way, I go this way. You go that way, I go the other way. That's what a peacemaker does. He's willing to give, willing to capitulate sometimes. Now, it depends on the circumstance. If it's a precept of God, a command of God, you don't compromise that no matter what. He says there in Acts, we should obey God rather than man. So if there's a question about God's law and what God wants, you don't compromise. If it's a personal thing where you have strife with somebody, be willing to give. 
Now, here was a strong part of Abram's personality, obviously. He was willing to give. Didn't Herbert Armstrong make a whole career out of there's two ways of life, the give way and the get way? That was his primary point <laughs> throughout his ministry from a certain time on. Give or get? Well, here it is, all the way back here. Why does God say to look at Abram, your father? Because he's willing to give instead of get. It's that simple. What's there to fight about? You know, just threw it in Lot's lap. Here, take your choice. Uh, I didn't expect that. <laughs> I expected a fight. Just like our herdsmen are fighting, I figured we'd fight. Abram said, no, take your pick. Okay. So, Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Eternal destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the Garden of the Eternal, like Eden, like the land of Egypt, as you go into Zoar. Why did people go to Mitzrayim or Egypt when there was a drought? Because it was a well-watered area. It was green. There was crops there. And it was unusual to have a drought there. God created one in the days of Joseph later on, but that wasn't the norm. Normally, if people started getting hungry, they headed for Mitzrayim or Egypt. Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves one from the other, and Abraham dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent in the direction of Sodom. Now, God approached Abram after he made peace with Lot. Verse 14, uh, Lift up now your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. Still in the land of Canaan, it's already said, but Lot went east. For all the land which you see, to you will I give it into your seed forever. Now, you go into the book of Joshua, and you read the dimensions of that land, and it went basically from the Salt Sea on the north, Great Salt Lake, to the waters of Strife on the south, which equates very well to the rapids in the Colorado River. And that matches the dimensions that Joshua put on it. And from Jerusalem to the west, almost to the Nevada border and to the east, a bit beyond Bryce Canyon. <laughs> that was the size of it. And that's a lot bigger than Israel in the Middle East is. I've gone through that before. But it was the land of Canaan, north, south, east, and west. And I'll give it to you. And your seed will be as the dust of the earth, so that a man can number the dust of the earth, and shall your seed be numbered. Now, he was over 75 years of age at this point. Because that was when he was when he left. Now here's God telling him, you're going to have seed like the sand of the sea. And he didn't have any kids. <laughs> uh, so that must have kind of gone through his mind. Hmm, that's interesting. What do you mean? 
So God told him, Arise and walk through it. Lengthen the breadth, I'll give it to you. So Abraham removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built an altar. So he went and examined it, just like God said. He's not a backsliding heifer, as you read about in Hosea. He is not stubborn and stiff-necked like his seed came to be, uh, all Israel for the most part. Very compliant, very willing to say, okay, God, you say so, I'll do it. Now, there's somebody you want to be a friend. I'm not always that compliant. Are you? (laughs) Sometimes I resist. It's my carnal human nature to resist. I want to do what I want to do. And it's easy to minimize what God says or simply blot it out and forget it. And then at some point, you're going to wake up and say, Ooh, what have I done? (laughs) You know, how did I get in that attitude? I suppose probably Abram had some difficulties with this to some degree or another. But boy, every time it comes up, he's ready, willing, and able. Let's do it. Now let's go to chapter 14. Uh, Here, some of the enemies of Abram mentions the salt sea in verse 3, probably the great salt lake. Uh, Anyway, some of these enemies in verse 12 took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. So they took him captive, took all his stuff with him, took all his animals with him, and Lot was a wealthy man too. So there was a lot of booty here, a lot of gain. And there came one that had escaped and told Abram, the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite brother of Eshcol. These were confederate with Abraham, Abram, so he had, he had allies there that he had become friends with. Now, normally speaking, if a new kid on the block moves in, not everybody accepts it. There's often trouble. Especially when he comes in saying, God sent me here, and this is to be my land and for my heirs forevermore. I don't know whether he said it that way or not, but you had all these Gentile peoples living there, and they had become allies with Abram. So he must have approached them in a very friendly, diplomatic, kind, friendly way for them to become allies in a short period of time. I knew a guy that moved to Montana from New Jersey. And they did things a certain way in New Jersey, I guess. The Montanans did them a whole lot differently. And he was kind of a heavy set fellow and he wore a little pistol about that long right here in the middle of his back, which he could only reach if he was contorted. And anybody behind him could easily just pluck it out. <laughs> but he'd sit on the bar stool there in Wolf Creek, Montana, and try to tell these Montanans how they ought to run the state and the county and the town. Now, this went over like a lead cloud. 
And they did not become his allies, even though he bought them lots of drinks. He was fairly wealthy. I think Abram approached it a lot differently. Uh, so you see, just the fact that they'd become his allies showed <coughs> the same kind of attitude that he'd showed with Lot. He was willing to give, he was willing to share, he was willing to get along with, in any way that was necessary. We'll see a little more of that as we go on. So, here a lot had been taken captive, and his family and everything he had. Verse 14, And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them into Dan. It wasn't Dan yet, but it's where Dan would be when Joshua divided the land. So he's just giving the, the location. Up north was where Dan was, far north in the Promised Land. 318 trained servants. He handed them bows and spears and says, let's go get them. He didn't have to do this, did he? Uh, he'd sent a lot away, done it in a friendly manner, let him have what he wanted. He didn't hold a grudge. When Lot got in trouble, here he came. He took care of those that he was related to or friends with. He took care of them. Verse 15, he divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night, pincer movement maybe, and smote them and pursued them to Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus, and brought back all the goods, and brought again his brother Lot, and his goods, and the women also, and the people. So he did a total recapture. capture. The king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Laomer, and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Shaveh, which is the king's dale. doesn't say he lost a man. He just put the herd on him and won and got Lot and everything he had and brought him back. So, here's God's response. Melchizedek, who was Christ, that can be shown in Hebrews 7. Melchizedek, king of Salem, Jerusalem, Salem, peace, king of peace, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God, the Most High God being the Father. And Melchizedek was he who became Christ the Son. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. So this characteristic of Abraham that he had, or Abram, that he had, as a man, as a relative, as a friend, was something that God held in very high regard and blessed him as a result of what he did for Lot. So if you're going to be a friend and a friend of God, you need to take care of those who have need. And Lot was in dire need at that point. Abram took care of it, and God blessed him. And said, Blessed be Abram, and blessed be the Most High God, which has delivered your enemies unto your hand. So Christ told him, 
the Father has delivered you. Just like he and I said we would do. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons and take you the goods yourself. And Abram, and, and of course, Lot was living in Sodom when this happened. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lift up my hand to the eternal, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth. I worship the God who owns everything. Now, we have a big pile of stuff here that Lot had, and you're asking just to have Lot returned as a citizen, and you can have everything that you've gained back in war. Now, that's a reasonable offer. Because the spoils of war, when you take them, generally speaking, throughout history, have gone to the victor. We have that expression, to the victor go the spoils. And that's normally the way it's done in the realm of mankind. But Abram was an exceptional individual. He didn't say, yep, I went after him, I killed him, now it's mine. On the high seas, if you captured a ship, killed the crew, the ship was yours. Even by maritime law, if there's a ship drifting and everybody's fallen overboard or left for whatever reason, if you find that ship, it doesn't matter what the title says, it's yours, according to my maritime law. So these spoils, in every respect, actually belonged to Abram, okay? So he says, but I worship the God of heaven and earth that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. <coughs> You're not going to be able to tell me you made me rich by because I took these spoils. He already had his gold and silver and cattle anyway, but he wasn't greedy, and he showed that again. So he said, verse 24, Save only that which the young men have eaten, already consumed, and the portion of the men which went with me. Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. So he's, his allies, he took care of. He didn't take anything to himself, but these people in the land, these Gentiles that he had made allies with and went to help him fight, he said, We'll divide it up. They can have their share, but I'm taking nothing. How could you be more fair than that? You guys help me? Okay, you can have some. I'm not taking any. Take the rest back to Sodom with you. I imagine that Sodom, I mean, uh, A, the king, and B, Lot at that point were saying, yeah, Abram. <laughs> You're my man, Abram. You're my friend. Look what you did for me. And then you give me my stuff back instead of taking it. There's a characteristic you want in a friend. Wow. <clears throat> and God blessed him for it, he said. Let's move on down a little bit. Chapter 15 comes the covenant. After these things, the word of the Eternal came to Abram in a vision, saying... Fear not, Abram, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. 
<clears throat> now these are things that he gave him in a vision, sometimes person to person. Uh, they're things that, for the most part, he's given you and me in this book. I'm your God. I own everything. I will give you everything I have. Be part of my kingdom. And he gives us all kinds of specific blessings, he says, he will do for us in this word. We could spend quite a bit of time, if we were to go through and analyze everything that God has promised us. That would take a long series of sermons. Everything that God has promised us. So it's all in here. He gave it to Abram and he wrote it down for those of us on whom the ends of the world have come. That all these things back here were written as examples for you and me. So therefore, when he tells Abram these things, he's talking to us. Just as much so as he was talking to Abram at the time. He says that. It was written for us. There did not need to be a record. Put it aside. Nothing. There didn't need to be a record of these things unless somebody could use that record later on for a purpose. Okay? I want us to take this personally. That God is doing these things with Abram, and he's, but he's promising us the same things. And when Christ was here in his ministry, he repeated a lot of these things from the Old Testament, put them in his own words, and preached them to the disciples and the multitudes, and then had that written down for those who would follow that which is also us. No need for it otherwise, but it was just for them. So, God tells him, I protect you, I'll give you great reward. But Abraham had this, Abraham had this question in mind, because God said you're going to be like the sand of the sea. And he didn't have any kids. So, God said, I'm going to bless you and take care of you. And he says, uh, I have a question. <laughs> now, friends can do that. They can converse, communicate. Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus, the thing I've got, nearest thing I've got to a son is the kid of a servant. Uh, you know, you're going to bless me and take care of me? Uh, well, here's a question I have. How's this going to happen? He said, Behold to me, you have given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is my heir to a servant. So, God said, Good question. <laughs> surprise you thought of that. No, no surprise at all. God just hadn't told him more. He just left it lay for Abram to cogitate about. He leaves a lot of things lay for you and me to meditate, to think on, to sort out what God might or might want in our lives. We are told to meditate, to think, to pray, to fast, to find out what God wants or what he's going to do. So, Abraham asked, or Abram at this time. Uh, 
Hear the word came, verse 4, This shall not be your heir, but he that shall come forth out of your own groin shall be your heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if you be able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your seed be. Not just like the sand on the beach, but like the stars. Go out and try to count the Milky Way some night and see how you do. And he believed in the eternal, and the eternal counted it to him for righteousness. If you believe God, it's counted as righteousness. You and I have gone through all the prophecies in the Bible. By now, some of them many times, actually. And he's told us a lot of things in there that he is going to do. I assume that you are here because you believe him. Why else would you have come here? Unless you believed those prophecies, believed those words of God. We're on our way to being God's friends, aren't we? Aren't we doing what Abram did? God reads, says it, we hear it, we go read it, we do it. I think we're good candidates for friendship, so far, based on having the same attitudes that Abram had. And that's why he tells us in Isaiah 51, look to your father Abram, Abraham and your mother Sarah. Look to them. Okay, that's what we're doing. And we're making a comparison here between their attitudes and our attitudes. And as many warts as we may have, I cannot help but say that I'm looking at a people who at least has some of the characteristics of this man we're reading about, or you wouldn't be sitting here today. Okay? Now... God expects, then, of you what he expected of Abram. Because you're following that way and you've come this far, how far are you going to go? How much can you endure before you give up? Can you endure to the end? Can you go through every trial, trouble, and circumstance that comes upon you and say, God will not lay more upon me than I can bear. I can handle this with his help and then set forth to do it. We're seeing an example here of that kind of belief, and it's counted as righteousness. Righteousness means doing right. A person who is righteous is a right doer. And the right is here. We're not right politically, we're right with the Scripture, right with God in a different sense. So, verse 7, he said to him, I am the eternal that brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land where you stand. You and I have come to believe this is the original promised land. And we are Abraham's seed. And he has promised it to us. And if you go into Zechariah 2, he says in 3, he says, during the time of the two witnesses and the regathering of the church, that he will be as a wall of fire around us, and that Jerusalem will be built 
as a city without, as towns without walls, that he will take care of us and protect us. And when Satan sends an army against us, when we go up to Zion to be protected, he'll send a, a, a flood, or the, the earth will open and swallow the army that Satan sends. So he's promised us the same thing he promised Abraham. So we look to Abraham, and if we believe him, it's counted as righteousness. And this is the same land. And we're here. And we're inheriting it. Now we're on the outside of, I think ironically, and perhaps with great meaning, we're just outside what they've named the Canaan Mountains right here. This range that goes from here around Colorado City and ends before you get to Hurricane is known as the Canaan Mountains. Mount Canaan is the tallest one at the far end. <clears throat> and Zion's on the other side, and we're just on the outside. But yet in all, when you look at the dimensions, it is part of the promised land. But I think there's a symbolism here. If we will do as we're supposed to, then we will inherit the land, even though we're outside the Canaan Mountains. Uh, maybe technically that's not a uh, entirely correct since this is part of the promised land, but I think there's some symbolism there. As they prepared to go into the land of Canaan originally, uh, then we're, we're going to get closer. We're going to go to Jerusalem itself and dwell there with protection and then to Zion with protection. So this is only a gathering point, and then we go to do the job. Okay, uh, Abram had another question, verse 8. He said, Lord God, how will I know that I shall inherit it? Well, I just told you you would, and you believed me, but Abram still would like a little more confirmation, okay? He said, take me a heifer three years old, a she-goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon, and he took him all these and divided them and so on. And when the fowls came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. So this was as dark and deep a sleep as you can go into. Apparently almost like a coma. Well, he'd done what God said. He did the sacrifices. And then he tried to keep the birdies off. And then he went into a deep sleep. And then God said to Abram, Know of a surety that your seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. Now this would be in the future, after Abram was dead and Joseph was in the land, son of Jacob. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And we saw what happened to Pharaoh and his armies. <coughs> Afterward they shall come out with great substance. And that is a matter of history. They spoiled the Egyptians as they came out. Took all they wanted. All they could carry. And you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come here again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. The Gentiles are still going to have some sway. 
And it came to pass that when the sun went down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between the pieces of the sacrifice. In the same day, the Eternal made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto your seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Uh, there is some thought that the severe river north of here was the Nile and that the Colorado was, was the original Euphrates. I don't know that to be true, but it very possibly is. So he believed. Uh, let's see. Chapter 16. Sarai, Abram's wife, didn't have any kids. Now, years had been going by, and it hadn't happened. In fact, uh, we find out in verse 16 here that Abram was 86 years old when Hagar uh, had Ishmael. <clears throat> so, from age 75, when he came out to 86, is 11 years that they'd been waiting, and no children. And it's going to get longer. So, Sarai, I said to Abram, Behold, now the Eternal has restrained me from bearing. said, God, close my womb. I can't have any kids, obviously. So there must be a different answer to this problem than me. So I pray, go to my maid. It may be that I may obtain children by her. She'll have them. But since she's my servant, I'll claim them. That was her reasoning. They'll be my kids. So, Abraham, being a good husband, did as his wife asked. I don't know how many women have asked their husbands to go into the babysitter, but it's probably been a very, very few. Uh, but she was, in her mind, desperation here. So he went to Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. So suddenly Hagar says, I'm better than you. You can't get pregnant, and I am. And it was your husband. <laughs> that was her attitude. This was a mistake by Sarai. <laughs> And we'll see as the history goes on that it did not go well. Uh, it wasn't what God had in mind at all, but it's what came to her mind. And you know, sometimes we find our own solution. We think, since this happened, this must be God's will. This must be God's will. Because it seems good to me, and it seems to answer my problem, seems to answer... My desires, my needs, my wishes. And a lot of people went out and married somebody outside the church. When God very clearly says there in 1 Corinthians, do not do this. So you can be sure that if you do it, it is against God's will. It just is, because that is His absolute, outright statement. Don't do this. So you are in rebellion and totally against God, although you might, in your human justification, and I've seen people do it for decades, say, well, 
There's nobody else around. And this one's nice, be it boy or girl. And and I like them. And, and I prayed about this. And here they are. This must be God's will. No, it's not. According to His Word, it is not, no matter how much you justify it. Now, people have gone ahead and done it, contrary to God's will, and it's worked out for better or for worse, depending on the circumstance. It wasn't God's desire that you do that. It was against His desire. In most cases, it did not work out well at all. In my experience over the last 60 years, as I've observed it, it did not work out very well for most. Some, because of their character, their capacity, their abilities, have made it work fairly well. But the problem is, if they've got this religion and you've got this religion, sooner or later there are a certain amount of conflicts. You might get along pretty well. I'm thinking of someone in particular decades ago who married somebody, and he says, that's okay. I don't mind your religion. And uh, years went by, and I think they got along fairly well. But then kids were born. Now we got a situation developing. As the kids began to grow, he said, they're going to be raised this religion. And she said, they're going to be raised that religion. Does that sound like a problem? And then, that was daughters being born. And it was somewhat dicey. But then finally there was a son. Ooh, then it got really hot. All right, you can have the daughters. They can go to your church. That boy's mine. This created conflict. It's just something that's there. It's something that someday, sooner or later, you will face. I believe this way, you believe that way. We'll either fight or see you. <laughs> or we will acquiesce and get along together. Now, God brought that up in First uh, Corinthians 7. And we didn't understand that for a lot of years. But he took it upon himself there whom he would call. I've seen many times him call one of the mates and not the other, into the truth. And since he is the one that calls, and nobody else can, including you, you cannot convert anybody. You can lead them to water, but you certainly can't make them drink, and if you try, they'll spit it on you. We've learned that. But he said, if I call one and not the other, if your mate, be it the female or the male side, will allow you to keep your religion and worship me according to how I want to be worshipped, then you can be married and get along, and the one that I called can be qualifying for my kingdom. Now, if that mate is not called, and they become an enemy, and they won't allow you to worship me in peace, then you can divorce them and not be bound and be free to marry only to someone in the church. In other words, 
If I let you out of that because you've got an unconverted mate, don't go get yourself another one. Should make sense. So it has to be treated according to Scripture. Uh, something came up that uh, I was treating someone differently. Well, God gives the rules. If they're both in the church, it's one thing. If only one is, it's another thing. It's an entirely different circumstance. Now, this worked out in part, and God, to one degree or another, accepted what was done here. Okay? It would not work out well in most cases. Uh, but we look at the fruits of something, and when you look at polygamy throughout the Bible, uh, you will find that it usually doesn't turn out too well. Uh, it happened within Abram's family, Isaac, Jacob, go down through the list, and they took handmaids and so on, or second wives, third wives, but the wives fought with each other, and the kids fought with each other. And they fought over inheritance. Uh, God allowed it, he said, in the Old Testament, because of the hardness of your hearts. But then Christ said, but I say unto you, it should be one man, one wife, as I originally intended, until death do you part. Now, the only exceptions he makes are for the breaking of God's law. Where divorce can occur and they not be bound anymore. Uh, God made an exception through Paul about an unconverted mate, is called. Now, sometimes I've seen it happen where, and more frequently, I think, where God called the wife first. I've seen this happen many, many times in pastoring churches in past years. He'd call the wife first, and then sometime later on, he would also call her husband. Now, my reasoning on that is that if he calls the husband first, he's the man in charge. I've been called. You need to do this. And a wife being trying to be obedient, trying to love her husband, trying to do as he wants, might accept his religion, his change, easier. But if he calls the woman first, she has to stand up against her husband for God. Because he's an enemy at that point. So she has to show her faith and her belief in what God has shown her and stand up against her husband. And he has to then swallow his pride and ego and come to understand his wife's religion. This happened with the Armstrongs. He called Loma first, and she saw it. Saturday's the Sabbath. That's all there is to it. It's in the book. She saw it. So she accepted it and started keeping it. And then she went to Herbert and said, Herbert, you're going to church on Sunday like your Quaker ancestors, but Saturday's the Sabbath. It is not. <laughs> I can prove that. So she had to stand up against him for God in God's way.
<coughs> so he plunged into the Bible and started trying to prove it. So then he ate crow and said, you're right. So God had to test the woman first and then humble the husband. And it worked out beautifully. And I've seen God do that often instead of the other way around. But sometimes he only wants one, male or female, not the other. So he said, there can be divorce without being bound. You can marry again only in the church. Uh, if they will not let you worship me in peace, become an enemy of God in that sense. And the other exception he made was for porneia, which can be shown not to be just premarital sex and fraud, where you claim you're a virgin and you aren't and so on, but it also includes other sex sins, homosexuality, adultery, and so on. Uh, Mr. Armstrong never did understand that. Uh, he thought porneia was fornication before marriage. But striving over the Greek never gets you anywhere, and Paul said don't strive over words. But when I was studying the subject out, because John Reitenbaugh asked me to write a, article, or a booklet on the matter, I happened to find in uh, the book of Revelation where Jezebel, who was married, was committing porneia. So it was adultery, not fornication. She was a married woman sleeping with some other man, and that was porneia. So uh, unfaithfulness of a mate is grounds for divorce in the New Testament. You can put them away because that breaks the covenant. And Christ used the exact same thing when he married Israel and she went out and broke the covenant, committed adultery, he divorced her. <coughs> so he would expect no less of us. The way people got around that and says, well, yeah, but he went ahead and died. And therefore it broke it. Well, no, he divorced her long before he died. Now, he's not going to remarry until the kingdom. But he did say for adultery, porneia, homosexuality, sex sins, uh, you can. That does break the marriage covenant. I've, I've known people who lived with a, an adulterous mate, were sleeping around with everybody, male or female, whichever it was, and they felt, well, I can't divorce or I couldn't remarry because this is after marriage. So you mean to tell me God expects you to allow your mate to run all over the place and come home with syphilis, gonorrhea, AIDS, or whatever, and you got to live with that? No, you might ought to get rid of them before they bring you that. And you have God's blessing if you do. He wants faithfulness between mates just like he was faithful to Christ and faithful. God was faithful to Israel when he was married to her. Christ was. She was the one unfaithful, and he divorced her for unfaithfulness. He said, depart from me. Get out of here. I'm not going to live with this. You don't have to. That's kind of beside the subject. Where It's already two, nearly 2.30. Uh, but that's okay. We need to understand this and understand it in the context of what was happening here. And the things did not go all that great uh, with what happened here. So we'll pick it up there next time, God willing.